I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Welcome to Podcarts Life is Like a Box of Records podcast. My name is Helena Rafai. Occasionally, we bring in special guests to talk about the songs that have soundtracked their lives so far. For rights reasons, music might be shorter than the original song. Original music is by Good Dog, a.k.a. Susan Bear. This week's guest is Neil Anderson. Neil has been working with Biffy Clyro since he was 18 and is now their tour manager. Neil is a man who lives and breathes music like many others, and his passion for Biffy is unrelenting and completely infectious. Neil Anderson, welcome to Podcart. Really appreciate you doing this as I know how busy you are. For those that might not know you, please tell us who you are. Um, yeah, so I, I'm, uh, my name's Neil. I work as a tour manager, among other things, with um, Biffy Clyro. I've worked for, I worked out the other night, I've worked for Biffy near just, I think I'm about six months shy of having worked for Biffy longer than I haven't worked for them. So that's to say, I've worked for them for more than half of my life. Um, so yeah, I started working with them when I was 18 um, or 19. Um, I started off, um, the first time I, I met them um, in a in Falkirk, in a small bar in Falkirk. I was there to see a friend from school's band play and Biffy were on the bill as well. And they just blew my fucking mind. They were amazing. Um, so about uh, so I kind of kept in touch with them at the time. I worked in Missing Records um, and, and the, the long, the long gone Missing Records that was in Wellington Street in Glasgow. Um, so I think on that night, I kind of half cut, I introduced myself to them and said, "You should really come and do an in store in Missing." To which they said, "Oh, we're actually playing in Tower Records next week to launch our the EP that they did in Electric Honey." So that immediately blew my fucking mind thought holy shit they're playing in tower records they're not going to be interested in missing but anyway i took yeah i kind of met them started to do bits for them i started doing things like their website um doing some merchandise designs um that then graduated to going out on tour with them and selling their t-shirts and then um, after a couple of years, um, the tour manager that we had at the time went off to work. I think it was with Franz Ferdinand that he went off to work with. So I, being the only other person there, kind of graduated to being the tour manager. And I've kind of been there. I've been in that role ever since. Um, and I'm kind of lucky enough that I kind of do other bits with the band as well. Um, so I'm, I'm pretty much full biffy or my kind of full-time job on um and off tour um so yeah that and that that's <clears throat> that's the that's the, the the long story short of yeah of my professional career with biffy um and in there's been a couple of gaps um in year in the years where we've taken a little bit of time off and i've been asked to work with other bands which i've taken up a couple of those offers um uh, being at the time i was kind of I think at the time, as a young person that had come into tour management as a bit of an aside from working with Biffy, it was quite fun to be asked to do other bands. But I was always a bit, um, I was always kind of arrogantly idealistic, saying, "Well, I'm, you know, my thing is Biffy, and I'm, my thing is Biffy because I love them. I think they're they were my favorite, are my favorite band, as well as being people that are now incredibly dear to me." But I had this kind of yeah arrogant, arrogant, idealistic principle that I wouldn't work for bands that I didn't really love. So the crux of that is that, yeah, in a couple of the gaps that Biffy took, I worked for a couple of other bands. I worked for a band called the Guillemots um, a number of years ago, who I, who I still rate incredibly highly. I could have easily picked one of Fife's songs for this. Um, but, yeah, the the, the, the seven-track thing honed it in slightly more. So, yeah, I did some work with the Guillemots, 
Um, yeah, I just loved them. I thought they were an amazing. I think they are an amazing band. Um, um, and then ab- about five years ago, um, I we had a few months off with Biffy, and I got asked to do James, who were a band that I never at the time was far was too young for in the kind of early 90s but when I first started getting into into kind of music um age kind of I guess 12 13 I would I would get records from the Cumbernauld library I would I would rent or high and check out CDs from the from the Cumbernauld public library and the James greatest hits was one of those things so when when yeah when I got asked if I was free to cover um, cover a handful of shows and then a kind of a, an arena tour with James, um, I did it because yeah I, I had a really fond memory of sitting in my mum and dad's house um, on the computer um, pro, on the computer doing what I did, which was to go to websites I liked and then open up the HTML source of those websites and look at it and think right how. How did they make this website, and how can I rip off eighty percent of this code and adapt it to my own website? I've got really fond memories of doing that, listening to the James Greatest Hits CD. So yes, yeah, so I, I did some, I did a bit of touring with James for a little while, um, just in between some Biffy periods. But predominantly, that by and large, the um, yeah Biffy has been the thing that I've kind of dedicated my adult life to, which I feel very. Yeah, feel very lucky and grateful to have been able to do. So part of uh, the premise for this podcast is that it's a bit like Desert Island Discs, I guess. Yeah. You, we've asked you to pick seven songs that have soundtracked your life so far. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have to say, I it's I love uh, everything that you've picked. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, the, um, we'll get on to probably my favourite later, but... Mm-hmm. Weezer, the Blue Album. So why did you pick this song? Um, so I feel like Weezer were... So the, this song in particular, I, I could have probably lent on anything from the Blue Album, but this the, this song, which is the third track on that record, the fairly wincingly titled The World Has Turned and Left Me Here, It's there's something about this track that just it, it, it sums up that album perfectly. It's even, even at the very start, the kind of, the drum fill, the kind of stereotypically Weezer drum fill that opens it, and then really fuzzy, heavy guitars with really prominent acoustic guitar picking over it. The whole thing is just, yeah, it encapsulates that record perfectly to me. I think of all the, the songs in that album, it's maybe the most distinctive sounding, um, which is, you know, saying something. But yeah, I just I love it. Um, I really love it. There's just that that song has something really special about it. Um, Weezer were kind of my kind of gateway, if you like, from pop into kind of guitar music. Um, Weezer and also Ash to a slightly lesser degree because I've got that first Ash record for about three yeah. pounds on cassette in our price in Cumbernauld, which I think was which I think was a genius move by them to get people like me to buy their record. But yeah, Weezer, um, they were, <laughs> like with a lot of people, um, the Windows 95 install CD had a copy of the video of Buddy Holly on it. And I think I was aware of them maybe prior to that. Um, they'd maybe been on Top of the Pops or the uh, like staying up late to watch The Word. I think they'd maybe been on that. But there was something about having the you know being on the being able to see their video on your home computer that really sort of there was something quite magical about that so yeah so Weezer I then I think I got the I'm pretty sure I would have got the tape from the Cumberland Library which I mentioned um and yeah it, it was 
it, it was it just blew my mind um prior to that you know the first concert that I ever went to in 90 so this would have been two years prior to this in 1992 was take that at the SECC my mum my baby sister and I to see that and that was amazing I, I fucking don't get me wrong that I <laughs> I really love take that take that's actually another band that I've done a brief bit of tour management with which was quite exciting and again I did it for my I did it to um, I did it for my younger self. Um, I was asked to do it, and I was, yeah, I, I kind of had to do it for my younger self. But yeah, we we saw take that. I loved pop music. I loved going to the supermarket and buying seven inch singles from from ASDA for ninety nine p. You know, just whatever was kind of whatever pop songs were on the radio. And I think at some point that shifted slightly towards bands like Ash, and then yeah, to to, to Weezer. So yeah, I went from buying Chakademus and Pliers seven inches to to rent to get in the blue album from the from the Cumberland Library, and it was just the perfect kind of bridge. Um, I, I was, I think I was a couple of years too young for for Nirvana, so Weezer were kind of my, yeah, they they were the they were the the band that kind of got me into guitar music, and they they remain one of my favorite bands. Um, you know, the, their first two records are, you know amazing undeniably amazing they were the first band that i ever traveled a significant period a significant distance to see my friends and i in our first year of uni traveled to san diego to see weezer because they it, it, it appeared <clears throat> it appeared that it might be their last tour and that they might be splitting up um so we spent the first installment of our student loan to fuck off to san diego for three days three days to see them um, and it turns out that they didn't split up. It turns out that we went to the show, we flew back, we landed into London, had a day to kill in London before getting the train back up to Glasgow. And pretty much the first thing that we saw when we got into London was an advert in the NME for a show at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, maybe three months later. <laughs> so that was a bit of a, a bit of a fucker having just travelled to San Diego to see them. <laughs> but um, yeah, they, uh, they, they are, they were and, and remain a really important bands to me. Did your image ever uh, adapt or change to, to fit in with these musical influences? Yeah, definitely. I mean, not maybe not maybe not instantly at the time, um, because I, I think I think for a, for a long time um, I was in kind of baggy jeans and skate shoes and sort of belt, you know interesting belt buckles and tight t-shirts that 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 kind of prevailed over anything else but i definitely definitely got a couple of v-neck a couple of v-neck woolen jumpers and sort of pinstriped shirts to wear underneath them and definitely got a couple of pairs of trousers that were slightly more uh slightly yes, that fitted slightly better so yeah the, the, it, it definitely definitely it, <laughs> it definitely came out in what i was i was wearing Moving on to your, uh, we're going to pick up on your your second record um, out of your box, Benfolds Five, Evaporated. What I really like about your the list that you've picked is there's some real dynamic shifts. So Benfolds Five, why did you pick this one? So I think Benfolds is probably my 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 Elton John, if you like, if Rivers Cuomo is my David Bowie. El- Ben Folders, kind of my Elton John. I, I, for some reason, his records have just stuck with me really strongly, and that no, what no more so than whatever and every man and um, the, the second, the second Ben Folds Five record. So I, I first heard I worked in Missing. Like I said, I worked in Missing Records on Wellington Street. I started working there illegally when I was fifteen because I lied about my age. I think they were looking for a kid that liked, you know, that wore baggy jeans and skate shoes and liked kind of liked rock music. Um, so I got a weekend job missing and was exposed to, you know, there's another band that are going to come up later on. Again, I heard in Missing for the first time. But yeah, Ben Folds 5, this record, um, this record, somebody put it on in the shop and just right from the first song, um, it just, it just, yeah, it, I, I couldn't. I just didn't know what I was listening to. I wasn't used to hearing piano in music that I found interesting. I was, you know, I wasn't used to hearing. I mean, they're they're quite weasery in their, you know, in their composition and their songs. It's really, really cool, interesting pop songs dressed up with, you know, 
yeah, with a, with a piano and a really, really, really distorted, heavy, fuzzy bass. It just didn't sound like anything else, and I think the going back to just having grown up listening to and loving the most obvious pop songs and pop music, it just really spoke to me, and the, the heaviness of it spoke to the to that side of, of my kind of musical interests. So yeah, that I put that record on quite a lot in missing whenever it would come round to be my turn to put something on the stereo. Kind of fell in love with it, um, and then went and got that and got the first went back and got the first album and then got their third album kind of just completely went down the rabbit hole with it so this song in particular um i just really i love how pretty it is i love how kind of melodic and just lovely it is um it's the last track on that record i think um and yeah i just love it i've got some really fond memories of involved in this song as well and um, my, my family are all i guess having been punished by me putting that record on a lot at home in the car um my mum and dad my sister have all you know they all really like ben folds and ben folds five now as well um so i've got a couple of just lovely memories um both at the time and latterly um i've been I've, I've, he played in kelvin grove a few years ago um and my i went with my sister and my mum and dad came couple of the guys from the band from Biffy were there um, one of my school friends were there um, I think we were maybe the only people on the guest list so they basically gave us the little kind of there's a little area down near the front of the stage that get cordoned off so it was just this beautiful experience of seeing him play in Kelvin Grove Park with all my kind of family and loved ones around me and it was just it was just magic um, and prior to that Biffy played a uh, Biffy played Tea in the Park. They headlined Tea in the Park. I think it was the last year or the second last year before it got before the site moved and then it eventually closed down. But we played, we headlined on the Sunday. It was a really full-on hectic day. It had been a really full-on and hectic week. We played the show on the Sunday night and then went back to Glasgow, went back to the hotel in Glasgow. And Ben Folds was playing the concert hall on Monday night. So my sister and I went along and after what had been a really difficult week, it was just this gorgeous experience going into the concert hall and sitting with the lights out, watching Ben Folds on his own with the piano for about two hours, playing all these songs, including this song, um, and just sitting next to my sister and not really saying anything because I was just completely just completely ruined from I think the week that I'd ran up to it um, and usually when I get home from tour usually when we've been away the last thing that I want to do is to go to see live music but there was just something really special about it it's, it's one of my fondest um, gig go, concert going memories is that show is sitting a few rows from the front with Amy just being tired but then the lights going out and suddenly it making total sense why I was there uh, so there's there's probably going to be a lot of these <laughs> a lot of these songs that I talk about where I kind of pull fairly random where, where where they where they trigger fairly random associations. But another one with Ben Folds was when Biffy um, were recording their album Opposites um, in Santa Monica um, in Los Angeles, and we were we were uh, at a studio called the Village Recorder. So we, Biffy, were in there for about three months. We, we kind of all had a house in Santa Monica that we lived in um, for two, two three-month periods with a little break in the middle. Um, so we were in one day um, and Ben Folds walked past us in the, in the foyer of the studio and we were all a bit like, fuck, that's Ben Folds. 
Um, and with the studio assistant that was working with Biffy at the time, knew him really well, knew that we were fans and just did a really quick introduction. Um, and he was just a really lovely, genuinely quite interested fellow. Um, he was kind enough to deal with me asking him if he could make, do an autograph for my little sister. Um, it was yeah it was just a really really nice unexpected um encounter with them the next pick is a band that is key to now um biffy Cairo. i remember the first time i saw them was on mtv2 questions and answers and i was lord the song that you've picked i'm quite surprised i thought you'd maybe pick something earlier but in the name of the wee man yeah it was really hard um i procrastinated for <clears throat> quite a while on which Biffy track to pick um, even where to place them in this kind of in in this not quite chronological but certainly biographical list of songs um, so I figured right in the middle um, they, you know and I've picked a song I've picked a song that's really late in their career it's it's almost one of the last things that they've recorded in terms of their discography so, so yeah in the name of the wee man it was a track that the whilst when they had finished their recording their last album ellipsis they had a few days off before mixing started on that record so in having just spent six months i think it was you know studiously recording what became ellipsis they had a couple of days off and they thought, fuck it, let's go into another studio, just as an engineer, and we're going to record, I think they recorded another 16 tracks that they had over the course of these three days, um, one of which was In the Name of the Wee Man. So that the track ended up being on the the, the with records. Obviously, there's there's various versions of records now. You have the album, and then you have to have certain extra tracks for digital providers for other countries. So the name of the wee man was added to the end of the of the record on the kind of expanded edition. It, it closes the it closes the record on the kind of expanded edition, which I think the bands kind of consider to be the definitive version of that record so it's it's yeah the last thing on their last album um it, but it for me it kind of it's just i love the song i love the song dearly they, they've played it for the last few years on tour and it's such a moment in the set it's kind of unlike anything else it's um i, f- I feel like it I f- whilst i could have picked something from much earlier in their career i feel like this song is a fairly good representation of all the sort of different sides of Biffy, the kind of mathy, intense, just mad, <laughs> just frankly mad things that they do. It's got the kind of intensity and the heaviness. It's really quite poppy at points. And it's a really good example of the the Simon Neal scream towards the end, which Simon has this way of screaming that it's just kind of unlike anything else. It's, it's all, There's like a... There's like a Mariah Carey kind of not um, like flutter to it, not in terms of the pitch, but just in terms of if you looked at the waveform of his voice, I'm sure it would just be up and down and up and down. And this song, the, the last minute or so of this song is a really, really great example of that. And I think Biffy sometimes people, people who haven't seen them live or kind of forget that they're, they're so heavy. <laughs> they're so, so heavy. And I think their later albums have kind of shown how in control they've become of their abilities. You know, there's songs, I think a couple of people on that have done this previously have picked the song, There's No Such Thing as a Jaggy Snake. And I kind of liken this song a little bit to that. But whilst Jaggy Snake was three albums, it was, it was, it was kind of written in between their second and third album. 
And it's the sound of a band full of ideas, a band are barely holding on. And I feel like that some of the ideas in, in Wee Man and some of the ideas that are on some of the songs in their new record, it's that same band that are just firmly, firmly in control of their of their madness. Um so yeah, it was it was really sticky trying to pick a song. Try you know, I don't think it's possible to pick a song that sort of that 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 in some way that some way reflects every aspect of the band and every aspect of my relationship with them. But I I think it felt right to pick something that was newer rather than later. How many shows have you done with the band? Do you know? Every show since the year 2002, I think. So I I, I couldn't, I, I genuinely couldn't tell you. It could be, it could be a thousand. It could be a couple of thousand. I'm, I'm honestly not sure. I should, I should, I should look it up or I should figure it out. Our our um our pal Frank Turner um has kept a studious list of every show that he's ever done. So he, he can go on stage and announce hello, this welcome to show two thousand three hundred and forty six. Um but we I don't I I haven't kept a numbered list. I, I could I, I'm sure I could put it together. But um, yeah, I, I couldn't go. I couldn't put a number on others to say other than to say that it's yeah, pretty much every show since two thousand two. And and as as their tour manager, and you're you're seeing like literally thousands of shows. How does the experience compare from one show to the next? Does every time you see them live, you just remember, oh my god, this is why I do this? Yeah, I mean, definitely. There's part. There's every single time they walk on stage, it's. You know the first the first thing that I do when the band go on stage. So I'll I'll go with them to the stage. We'll you know we'll wait around, wait for a couple of minutes, and then wait for the stage to be ready. They'll go on stage. Um, I'll finish doing what I was doing, whether that's you know putting jackets on chairs or whatever it is. And then the first thing I'll do is go straight out into the, and try and get as far into the crowd as I can and watch as much of the first song or so that I can. Because it's still it's still a fundamentally exciting thing to see them go on stage and to see the to see the first song to see the kind of reaction of the <clears throat> of the crowds to the to the first song and Biffy don't tend they they don't tend to ease into it they tend to start big um, so yeah it's 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 always kind of exciting some shows um, just the nature of having been around them and seen so many times I'm I'm very sensitive to the to what the boys are doing on stage so if if any of them are having a bad show or if there's anything kind of going on i'm i'm kind of acutely attuned to what's going on um part, partly because obviously if there's some if there's something going wrong it, it needs to be addressed or just if any of the boys aren't in a particularly good headspace um yeah i, I have to be quite attuned to what's Going on, so I think some of the times my enjoyment of the show can sometimes be put to the side because you need to, you know, I need to be attending to whatever needs to be attended to. But I don't think there's ever a single show where I don't have an emotional moment, um, one way, one way or another. There's been some shows that have that I've just, yeah. There's been some shows I found really difficult. Um, there, there was a show a couple of, like a, about eighteen months ago on the acoustic tour. Um, we did this tour for an MTV Unplugged album that they did, and I, my uncle passed away on the first few days of the tour. Um, his funeral was scheduled a week later, so we were in. I think we we were in. We did a show in Birmingham, so the band and I got into. It had been obviously a really tough few days, and we got into the hotel. You know, at three in the morning the night before the show, having travelled across from the previous city. So I got into the tough for a few hours and then got up at sort of six in the morning, um, got the train up to Scotland for Andy's funeral and then travelled back down to Birmingham um, after the show, eh, after the funeral. And I, I was a bit delayed. There, there was a, the train was cancelled, so I ended up flying. And I got back to the, I got to the venue maybe, maybe five minutes before they went on stage Um so I kind of barrel into the backstage with you know with a bag on my shoulder. They're all in their kind of show clothes, ready to go on, and that it was it 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 was just to get back having having been able, I was so happy not, not happy but I was so pleased and glad that I'd been able to get to my uncle's funeral. But it was really important to me to get back to my you know to my other family um, and to be there with them 
Um, so seeing them just as they went on stage, getting kind of hugs and kisses from them all, and then watching them play that show that that was a really that 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 was a really um, yeah that that was a really special kind of a special show for me because it, it just been a really really odd day and I think that's kind of what I needed I needed to get back to what felt like home and to yeah just to, just to see them play these songs that were so special to me so that that's that was a, that was um whilst that was a really difficult day the show their their show helped me immeasurably that evening um and yeah there's been some I mean you know part part I think part of the the joy with Biffy is that having been there since day dot like at this point I'm the kind of other than the Simon Ben and James in all of our kind of extended crew and you know agents and label management I'm kind of the one that's been there the longest now um so there's something really quite special and magical about seeing the the kind of slow but steady progression that they've had and feeling really like quite really quite proud and sort of just lucky to have been to have been part of that um you know but biffy like we this there's always been this sense i think publicly there was maybe a sense that they took a really big jump in between their third and fourth record um, that was Infinity Land and Puzzle, when the first record that they released with uh, with Warner. But really, in in terms of in terms of the view from inside the car, you know, from our perspective, it was always really steady. The, the venues, the venues never jumped massively. You know, the, the venue every every large venue that we'd played, we'd played every every venue that we was coming to headline. We had already been there supporting somebody at the first time that we that they headlined an arena you know we'd we'd been in that space before everything seemed like it was happening steadily and gradually and at a pace that was a pace that was kind of manageable um and i think there there's there was a, there was also a sense of them perennially being underdogs whether or not that's because of their weird name <laughs> Whether or not that was because you know, even I, I guess a good example of this is when they the first you know when when they got to the point where they could headline festivals, so they'd spent 10, 15 years playing every stage, playing every slot on the bill, and it got to the point where they could be the blast ones to go on on the main stage. So we did. See the first time they headlined, and the only time they headlined Tina Park because it closed a couple of years later. There were, I forget the band, but there was a band on earlier on in the day who said, "Hey, is everybody looking forward to Biffy Syro?" And it's like they're fucking headlining, and people still can't get the name right. There was one, the first time that they headlined the Reading Festival again, having played every slot, every fucking stage on the way up. First time they headlined Reading Festival. The day of the obviously Reading's and Reading and Leeds, so I think we did Leeds on the Friday, Reading on the Sunday, and the first fucking thing that we all hear on the day of the show, is we all wake up to the fact that Trent Reznor of Nine Inch Nails has been tweeting, sort of kicking off at the fact that Biffy, who were headlining, and Nine Inch Nails, who were going on before them, had to. It was it, he basically said. The band going on after us, whoever the fuck they are, have stitched us up on our production, which for a start wasn't true. <laughs> we had nothing to do with Nine Inch Nails production. That was all through the festival. But regardless, the fir- you know, they've got to the point where they can headline this festival and yet there's still some fucking person who's trying to kind of put them in their place, trying to, you know, trying to yeah, trying to sort of point point the big finger, saying that you shouldn't be where you are. So I think throughout all of it, there's just been this constant, slight fight to it all, um, which I think's ultimately made it all more rewarding and has given everybody that slight thicker skin that's probably needed to kind of to prevail against things like that. Because what you know, whilst nobody in, in that that example, whilst nobody's a mad fan of nine inch nails it's still a bit of a sting to you know to wake up and for Trent Reznor to be taking his anger out on you 
for something that's ultimately nothing to do with us. Um, it's an internal communication breakdown between him and his own team. So yeah, um, that's the long way round of saying that yeah, whilst Biffy have um, yeah managed, have quite rightly got to a place where they can take advantage of these really big opportunities. There's it's never been as it's never been as simple as here you go, boys. Take this and take it easily. There's always there's always been a bit of a fight. There's always been a bit of a struggle. There's always been a bit of a kind of just trying to just trying to always be moving on. I guess a slight change of pace now. This again, I was surprised to see. I don't know why a stereotype. It's terrible of me by now. But um, why did you pick Sarah Sarah Harm in this record in particular? So I spent a year um, aged uh, aged eighteen and nineteen. Um, I spent a year in Toronto um, at uni, um, so I, it was the first time I'd sort of lived away from home very much in at the deep end, getting on a plane to Toronto um, and living there for a year. So when I got there, um, I, the, one of the first things that I did was went to a record store and sort of had to just poke around and quite... I think pretty much immediately one of the first things that I saw was a stand of Canadian artists um, so I bought three or four things. I think it was the it was maybe the first Stars EP uh, record. It was certainly the first Broken Social Scene record. It was a band a band called Matthew Good Band, and it was You Are Here by Sarah Harmer, which I think is her second record. Um, just just going off the just literally thinking, well, fuck it, I'm in Toronto. I've just come from Glasgow where I worked in the record shop and was very aware of the local bands in and around Glasgow. So I'm going to do the same here. I'm going to figure out and get to know the all these bands that I've never heard of that are from here. And for, yeah, just this record, it, um, I just I just fell in love with it. in the harbor silently ignite the ore dips into oil like water and we are away so she was the singer of a band called Weeping Tile which I found out laterally it wasn't a band I was aware of at the time um, and then she released um, a number of solo records. I think she released five solo records, of which this is the second. Um, and th- th- I think this is the, this is her first proper studio record. I believe her first album was a sort of set of demos that she'd recorded at home. So I've I've never I've never seen her live. Um, I've never seen any mention of her playing live. I've never seen any evidence that she's ever come to Europe. I don't think I've ever seen any of her records in a record store in Europe, outside or certainly outside of Canada. Um, but hearing this record and then hearing a song of hers that was played on the alternative Toronto uh, radio station, I think it was called The Edge, it just this there was just something about this album that I, I just fell in love with. So this album basically soundtracked the entire kind of year that I was in Toronto, and has continued to has continued to be a, a really comforting record that I'll go and put on since. It's just that there's yeah, her voice is great, but her songs are just just fantastic. They're so 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 brilliant. I love them. Again, very melodic, very poppy, and um, quite folky. Um, but just yeah, there's there's just there's a spark there. There's there's a gem that makes her that just sets her apart from from um from things that would potentially sound like her to untrained ears. Um, Joan Shelley, an American um singer that Craig B from who uh, from Moat of Dust and X Areagram. I saw him tweeting about her, and I've really gone down the rabbit hole with Joan Shelley. And sh- her music reminds me a bit of a bit of Sarah Harmer. Um, sort of yeah. Plaintive, kind of, um, plaintive country leaning, folky, melodic, just loveliness. Um, so you've put one of my favourite pieces of music of all time, and it's your next pick. 
the top line when it hits the 50 second mark it just the hairs on your arms so entitled for Sigur Ross I mean I hear on the grapevine this is one of your favorite bands yeah very much so um again so I, I working in the record shop in Glasgow um somebody put on their first album I'm gonna I'm, I'm not going to do them the disservice of trying to say the titles of their songs um because I'll just make an absolute fool of myself, but I'm fairly confident I can allude to them and you'll know what I mean. But yeah, the first, they heard their, their first record, it, whilst it blew me away, it, it, you know, I loved it, but it wasn't, it wasn't a record. It, I didn't listen to it exclusively for a year or anything like that. You know, it was a record that I really loved, but it was obviously so, so kind of unique that it kind of occupied its own special little place. Um, and then, I forget the gap between the two records. It was maybe two or three years, but the the longer that I lived with that first album, in fact, it's actually their second album. the 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 the, the, <laughs> the blue album with the little alien fetus on the cover. I'm referring to it as their first record. Um, I think it's actually technically their second record. But anyway, between that and between the third album which was the brackets the untitled album there was a good a good couple of years i think and in that period i my kind of love for them really cemented itself so that album yeah i, I saw them at the queen's hall in edinburgh um between those two records and they played whilst i don't remember necessarily them playing this song i remember them playing new music at that show that wasn't on that second record and being blown away by it and I think that sort of deepened my <clears throat> yeah I think that deepened my kind of love for them so fast forward to I think it's January 2002 and I'm in Toronto and the movie Vanilla Sky is released so I think I was probably you know 18 19 year old boy young man I, yeah, I went to see that film. I think I saw it at the cinema. I forget whether or not I knew before. I think I, I think I knew beforehand. I think I'd seen online that there was Sigur Rós were on the soundtrack and that there was a new Sigur Rós track on it somewhere. So I went to see it, I think, knowing that. Um, and just kind of... And the movie, I, I really loved the movie. The movie really kind of moved me. Um I've gone back to it since and it p p potentially doesn't hold up quite as well as it did at the time. But at the time, I just, uh, yeah, Vanilla Sky, I really loved the film and the, the a, real, a real key of that was the soundtrack. Um, the whole thing, I know it's supposed to feel like a bit of a dream, but it felt, it did, you know, it felt like a, like a dream. It felt like a long music video. Um, and I think, um, like, you know, the, the soundtrack, Jeff Buckley, was on it. There's a what my favorite Red House Painters song, "Have You Forgotten," is on there. Um, um, the first track on Kid A is on there. Um, I think that maybe opens it. The the, the soundtrack's quite remarkable for that album. Um, and yeah, watching with my, my my kind of one 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 memory of watching the film that does that does kind of crystallize is watching the movie and hearing the. What the the song from the Blue Alien album, um, Seven for Englar. Again, I'm butchering the pronunciation of that, but hearing that song on the soundtrack and thinking, "Oh, cool, right? There's Sigaroz, but obviously the new song isn't on here. That's that must have been nonsense." And then the movie, right at the end of the movie, um, this song, Untitled Four. soundtrack is a live version of the song because the album didn't come out until October 
of that year, sort of nine months later. But yeah, right at the end, having kind of written off the fact that I wasn't going to hear a new Sigur Rós song, and then lo and behold, it's there. Um, yeah, I, I've got a memory of that being really special, and I think I think the song plays as he jumps off the roof at the end of the at the end of the movie. So yeah, so so as, so whilst the, the movie, I, I love the movie. Um, I've, as I say, I've gone back to it. It's not quite as special as I maybe thought it was at the time. But that band um, were and became massively important um, to me in my life. Um, so again, with a lot of all of this stuff, I've spent most of my life with you know the, the guys in, in Biffy, and I've got a couple of really fond memories of experience. You know, as I said, I saw them at the Queen's Hall in Edinburgh, and then I went to see them at the Barland in Glasgow, and then I didn't see them for quite a while after that. There maybe a few years that I just wasn't at home when they played in Glasgow. We didn't see them at festivals until, you know, years later. And we were, again, in California, record, the boys were recording Opposites, and they play, Sigur played at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery um, in, in Hollywood. So we all went. So the three members of the band, um, Simon's wife, Francesca, and I went along to this show at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery and it was the, the sun was setting and they played and it was it was fucking incredible it's one of the best shows I've ever seen and you know part part of that was the sort of the freedom of being in Los in California with my you know closest friends seeing a band I loved with them it was just magic changing the dynamic and returning to Canada arcade fire and wake up so why this so I'd got the arcade fire e the first EP I had got from the you know owing to the the Canadian connection owing to kind of keeping keeping a keeping in touch with people there and wanting to know what Canadian bands were were happening so I'd got that somebody had sent me that EP in the post which I had to go to the post office and pay about fucking nine quid on customs charges to actually receive but got the EP really really loved it um it didn't it didn't it, it whilst I thought the EP was amazing it wasn't like shit these guys are going to be really important to me um but then a year six months later Biffy were still on Beggar's Banquet. We were um, in London doing some press and I think it was Ruth, who was the radio plugger at Beggar's, gave me just, she. we got into the habit whereby she would give me lots of interesting CDs. She gave me the first, the second Interpol record a few months before it came out. She gave me a bunch of other things um, kind of before they came out. So we had this dynamic whereby she would slip me copies of records that she thought I'd liked and she gave me the um, funeral and she gave me a kind of advanced CD of funeral which I've still got kicking around somewhere kind of months before it came out um, and yeah it was amazing it was the EP kind of perfected um, which is wild because I read somewhere that it only cost them 10,000 Canadian dollars which is, is about six grand and British pounds at the time to record it sounds fucking amazing Yeah, so so that hearing that that record really cemented it for me. So I then saw them at the the debating chamber in Glasgow University Union, the one at the far end of Queen Margaret Drive, not not the not the QMU, the other one, the one down. They played the debating chamber in there, so I saw them with a friend in there, and it was fucking amazing. So three hundred people. They came in, they started the show from walking from the back of the room through to the stage, played the show, left the stage through the audience. Um, the whole, which, which today is obviously, it's a wee bit overdone. You know, everybody and their aunties kind of done that now. But at the time it felt genuinely remarkable. It was like, oh, fucking hell, oh my God, they're behind us. 
Um, and that show was amazing. Um, they, I feel like at that show they played songs um, from Neon Bible, despite this being about two years before Neon Bible came out. I think they played No Cars Go and maybe Crown of Love. Um, and then seeing them at the Barland six months or nine months later. And then, eh, no, sorry, the Barland would have been a couple of years later. So lately, after they played the University Union um if he were doing a summer of festivals. So this would have been um this would have been two thousand and five. So Biffy were playing if Biffy were playing a festival, they were we were waking up and playing very early on. They were playing very early on. So I think at Reading Festival we'd played kind of midday or something like that on the main stage. And Arcade Fire were playing in the tent and they were playing at about three or four o'clock in the afternoon. So we we did, Biffy played their show and then Simon um, from Biffy and I sort of hightailed it across the site because we were like, we, you know, we'd, we'd, we'd both gone down the rabbit hole. I think I've used that phrase a few times, but we'd both properly dialed into that record, into Funeral. We were kind of in love with it and they, they were a really really exciting band for us so we finished the Biffy show and Simon and I belted it over to the Radio 1 stage, we got there I feel like we got there about an hour and a half before their show because we just presumed that every fucking band on the site would be going to that show to get onto the side of the stage to watch that band play so we thought we should get there early doors and as it turned out I think we were the only people on the, on the side of the stage watching them play but it was it was just incredible. Throughout, there's obviously a, you've got such a passion for music and you have done since you were young quite clearly. And within a, an instant, it feels already that we're on to the last song. And, I know, right? <laughs> yeah, and a band that I know is very, very um, special to the Biffy Camp and, and yeah. Frightened Rabbit and the Oil Slick. So... Um... I've got a I've got a sort of really massive records collection. I've bought CDs and records since you know since I since I since I started listening to music, but I do also listen to um, I listen to a lot of streaming stuff as well, just for for the east. And I got an email from Spotify a couple of years ago, and the statistic for how much I'd listened to Frightened Rabbit was just wild. <laughs> I hadn't quite realised how much I had sort of just how much I'd listened and how much their music had sort of bedded into being just a just a part of my life, a part of my kind of day to day. Um so yeah, this this song, um The Oil Slick, it's the last song on their fourth record, Pedestrian Verse, which is also my favourite of their albums. Um I think I said before um that I, that I don't really, I didn't initially, I don't initially go into songs because of the lyrics, um, but Scott's songs <clears throat> are potentially the exception to that. I think, I think his lyrics and his handle of um of verses is is kind of like nobody else. Um, I'm always really dubious when when singers or songwriters release their lyrics as a book, as if they're as if their songs are somehow poems and I don't think that's quite right I think songs and lyrics kind of are you know exist and they're and the, the reference to the music's kind of critical I think it's a I don't think I don't think collections of song lyrics can de- can necessarily be presented as poetry but again I think Scott's songs are potentially the exception to that and this this one's certainly um we are yeah Frightened Rabbit are a massively important band to to me and to the to the to the guys the we first, I, I first heard, we first heard of them, I think through the guys in Ariagram, um, who had toured with the Twilight Sad, so we'd heard about the Twilight Sad through the Gram guys, and then accordingly frightened Rabbit from that. We, <clears throat> I guess, the year Midnight Organ Fight came out, we were doing we back when people would release singles on vinyl and CD. We had a single out, I forget which one it was, but we were doing in-stores in HMVs and FOPs up and down the country where we would pitch up to the shop at two in the afternoon. The boys would play a short set and then they would sign copies of the single for a few hundred people. And the coolest thing about it was that afterwards we te- the, the shop would tend to allow us to grab a bundle, a handful of things each and take off with them. 
so Simon had picked up the Midnight Oregon fight. Um, he'd kind of Simon's very much ahead of most folk when it comes to hearing back here be, being on bands. So he'd he was aware of them. He'd picked up the Midnight Oregon fight, and we'd later that evening we all got on a plane to go somewhere. And I've got this memory again, a vivid memory of being sat down on the plane, the plane being kind of ready, you know, everyone sat down, nobody's standing, seatbelts on, it's getting ready to taxi, and suddenly Simon's head, a few rows in front of me, kind of pops up, kind of like a meerkat, and he turns around, catches my eye, and his eyes are wide, and he's, he, I forget whether he actually said it, or whether he just held up the CD in motions to it, but the, you know, the message was clear, it was that this record is something else, so yeah, we, I got it. I fell in love with it immediately. They, I feel like it. I feel like I bought everything that they'd ever released. I feel like I emailed Fat Cat and said, "Do you have copies of this, this, and that?" Because I kind of want to get all of it. Um, and later, it would have been later that year or the following year, we asked them to come out on tour with us. Um, at the time, it was the biggest tour that Biffy had done. It was the first time they'd headlined. Brixton Academy in London and the first time they headlined the SECC in Glasgow. Um, so Frightened Rabbit came out on tour with us. Um, they were, you know, it was, they were lovely. We got to know them. They were lovely, lovely fellas, lovely boys. Um, and those songs were just fucking unreal. Um, you know, I've, <laughs> I think on day one, maybe the first time that we met them, I feel like I remember asking, asking them to, if they would... Was it me or maybe Simon? One of us asked them if they were going to be playing the song Heads Roll Off from Midnight Organ Fight, to which they laughed and scoffed and said, no, because it's fucking rubbish, <laughs> which none of us obviously agreed with. Um, and I suspect that they've come around on it since. But that that's a kind of that, that memory sticks out is very early on in our kind of in our meeting up with them. And yeah, we did those shows. Um, they were great. I feel like they went down really well, especially even in the in, in the big stage in the SEC. On the last night of the tour, we had with our our band and crew had we'd all we'd basically booked every room in the uh, Brunswick Hotel in the Merchant City. We had a big party there afterwards, and they all uh, again. I remember my sister pitching up in a taxi with half a frightened rabbit to an after show that I was leaving and thinking, "Fucking hell, these guys know how to know how to go at know how to go at it." Um, and yeah, that album just stuck with us. Um, and then, yeah, they really they continued to release music. They released their third album, Winter Mix, Mixed Drinks, which was magic. And then they released Pedestrian Verse, their fourth record, which whilst I think all their albums are amazing, I think I feel like Pedestrian Verse is maybe the it's maybe the fully formed frightened rabbit. are just towering they're remarkably good and yeah scott's just scott's turn of phrase had been absolutely perfected i think at that point i think that's maybe what the album title is maybe in reference to as well um but yeah so the, the yeah so that album was massively important to us and to all of us um and for me the, the uh, this song which is the last track on the record just it's just it's just amazing it's got this sort of weirdness of their earlier work with the the just the kind of confident melody of their kind of latter albums and again like i said earlier lyrics aren't necessarily something that i tuned into but this the um we've still got hope so i think we'll be fine in these disastrous times is a line that i think 
couldn't be more pertinent for kind of right now. Um, and it's a line that every time I hear it, I get a goosebump, I get a bit of a shiver. Um, <clears throat> yeah, yeah, I think it's probably the for somebody who hit his pinnacle of songwriting so many times, I think it definitely has to be up there for it. And a, a big part of it as well is just the, the really, we just have, whilst we didn't necessarily get to spend as much time with the Frightened Rabbit Boys over the years as we would have wanted to, just different touring schedules, we, we only toured together that once. There were little moments where they would kind of come in and out of our thing, which were really special. Like the last time Biffy, headlined at the O2 Arena. Um, I think Frank Drabbit had been in London the day before or the day after, but they got in touch because they were trying to find somewhere to park their tour bus for a day off. So we kind of parked them up at the O2 on the day of our show. I think we gave them a dressing room in the, in the backstage and just kind of let them be there for the day. And, you know, they weren't part of the show. They were just kind of in town. And it was just lovely. Like, you know, that day was mad as, as you know, the quote-unquote the big London show tends to be. But I've, again, I have a really pleasant memory of after the show with all the after show revelries going on of some of the Frightened Rabbit Boys kind of strolling down the corridor, um, having been to the after show and just hanging out. And it was just lovely just knowing that they were kind of in not not just at the show, but actually, you know, backstage with the dressing room with their bus parked out the back. Yeah. And then so, yeah. And obviously Scott passed away, which I, I won't. You know, I won't dwell on too much. Um, but when Scott passed away, um, we had obviously all known in the days beforehand that he was missing um, the day that we found out. I, I'd slept in, I woke up and saw that there was a text waiting on my phone from my sister. Um, and then before I could look at that, the phone rang and it was Simon from Biffy. And we, yeah, we talked about it and kind of consoled each other. And since we've the the biffy guys and i have always kind of we've always been very close and being on tour with each other whilst we whilst sometimes you know sometimes we get upset and the reason we're upset is because of one but one of the other guys that's just the nature of people being around each other i think nearly every single time when one of us is in a bad way mentally and speaking on tour the only way that we're brought out of it is with the help of the others um and that, you know, Simon, James and Ben and I are, are, you know, are very close and they have certainly helped me um, out of the hole on many an occasion. Um, I hope that I've helped and I think I have helped them too and we've helped each other. But the, the, the Scott thing felt... It felt very, it, whilst we obviously were grieving our friend and grieving somebody that we cared about and also grieving for the other guys in his band, knowing what it would be like if, you know, if one of our, if we lost one of our guys, we, I feel like we all came together um, after that a bit more as well, um, even between me and the boys, but also between the band themselves. I think, I think it held a mirror slightly to, the fact that the mental holes you can find yourself in, you, you need you, you need help to get out of them. Um, with the best will in the world, it's always going to be easier if you've got help to to climb out of them. Um, and yeah, the, the the situation gave us a moment for pause for sure. Um, and yeah, and as as I say, that that bands were. Yeah, really important to us, um, and this song I think is is maybe more than any of the other songs. I I come I put this in playlists. I come back to it often. Um, I think it's just a, an amazing an amazing song. I think they 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 were an amazing band. It seemed it seemed like the appropriate song as well to put as my my seventh song because it felt yeah it, it, of all of the songs there it felt. It felt like it was the most prescient for the for where we are right now, um, and yeah, as I say, on on tour, uh, it's I've de- I've de- we spend <clears throat> a lot of time together, and we've learned ways over years of touring. We've learned ways to try and keep our heads straight. We've learned that it doesn't do us any good to go out 
for a, for particular for massively long periods of touring without any breaks we've learned the hard way that you know we need to have things a bit more structured even just in how the boys now and how our day-to-day stuff is on tour it just gave, it just gave us i think the fright we needed to be able to to be able to put to 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 take constant and ongoing steps to keep ourselves to keep ourselves afloat to keep our heads clear and to 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 enable ourselves to be honest with each other about how we're feeling when I look back on the, the kind of early days of our touring, you know, we were all so close and we were all sharing three people to a travel lodge room and, you know, being in vans all the time. We spent so much time together and I feel like we talked about everything other than how we were necessarily feeling ourselves. Um, and I think that's no longer the case. Every, every, I think everybody, certainly in our the, the band and I, We'll sometimes do our own thing and not travel as part of the greater touring party, and even just little bits like that. I feel like we're all. I feel like we've done that to enable ourselves to feel more, just feel more, feel, feel more connected with each other, and and to to feel to feel safe and happy and content in what can be a really stressful day to day situation. You know because there's a big show or whether it's because you've got three flights to catch or you know 6 a.m radio sessions there's all there's all there's all manner of first world problems that we go through in what we do but but regard regardless of how comfortable the problem is it's the the effect on your mental health can still be the same it can still be absolutely devastating and absolutely punishing um so yeah over over the over the course of things um keeping keeping each other up and keeping each other um in a positive place has become has become quite important um and yeah and like i say i, I certainly don't mean to I, I certainly don't mean to conflate and associate my kind of love of frightened rabbit and my love of that song with that but yeah it can't help but inform when something like that happens you you know you, you can't help but reflect i guess on on your own situation. Um, yeah, that, that band have been very dear to me. Neil, what an absolute pleasure. Thank you for being so candid as well. catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row dreaming of something better well hello fresh is your guilt-free dream come true baby it's me geeky palmer let's wake up those taste buds with hot juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi Mm. hello fresh stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at hellofresh.com let's get this dinner party started 